Welcome to season four of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and not maybe, but definitely feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Oh my gosh, it is Friday, October 2nd, 2020, and we have the great distinguished honor once again to be speaking with Ivy uh, in Kentucky. And Ivy, it has been actually a fair amount of time since I last spoke to you. Um, I want to say it's been three months. I feel like that's about right. Yeah. And so um, I have not interviewed you for three months. And the last time that I spoke to you, we were, if it was three months ago, we were seven months into the pandemic. We are now 10 months, almost a year into the pandemic. Um, And the last time that we spoke, we were really at the early days of massive protests in Kentucky regarding the murder of Breonna Taylor and the investigation and early stories of her being so young, her being an EMT, um, Breonna being um, asleep when the police uh, broke into her apartment. Um, At that time, we were also really um, discussing the fact that it was a no-knock warrant and therefore the police were not announcing themselves um, and that she died in her sleep. And since that time, that three months time, we've learned so much more, including that early reports also suggested that there was so much of a bigger story and picture happening around her story that she um, had been going to some community meetings about trying to stop uh, some gentrification that was happening in her town and that her apartment building in particular was being targeted for. And so she was sort of known as someone who was in a group that was potentially trying to uh, block any uh, gentrification of pushing out current residents to jack up the prices of rent um, to then sort of do that level of gentrification. And now what we have is three months post me discussing things with you, we have two court cases that have happened regarding Breonna Taylor's life and death. And the first one was a civil court case which is when, you know, we're talking about individuals suing cities, uh, corporations, institutions, other individuals, and then the civil court system, the outcome is monetary compensation. And Brianna's case brought to her family against, um, what city in particular was it? The police department, but... It's Louisville. Okay, so in Louisville, Kentucky. So the Louisville um, Police Department and the settlement... um, you know, ends up with a $12 million uh, award, uh, quote unquote, um, as part of the settlement for Breonna Taylor's murder. So in the civil suit, we clearly have the police department through that kind of amount and through that kind of outcome that they are admitting to doing 
harm and wrongdoing and that a life, Brianna Taylor's life, was worth $12 million. Then you have the criminal court case. This is where that court system is about whether or not someone will be held not financially accountable, but through the judicial system and the criminal system accountable. And will someone be charged with manslaughter, murder one, murder two, and then have to um, personally you know, pay a restitution perhaps with jail time um, in order to rectify the situation. And in the criminal court case, Breonna Taylor was not mentioned in not a single part of the outcome or legislation. We have the attorney general who has some really harsh words um, as he reads the outcome, which included that none of the police officers were um, charged with any crime except for one who has since retired. And it wasn't for murdering or shooting Brianna Taylor, but was instead for shooting into neighboring apartments where nobody was harmed, but was not accurately at Breonna Taylor's apartment. And so that's where we are now three months later. And I distinctly remember that at the time that you and I last spoke three months ago, I mentioned people don't really seem to be out in the streets yet in Louisville, Kentucky. Ooh, like I, I feel like within 12 hours, I was sorely mistaken. And massive amounts of people began to be in the streets and I believe may still be there even today. So that's the scene that I'm trying to set up for how it was that you and I last spoke in terms of what we were really focused on, what has happened since. But then there's also your life and who you are and, and what's been going on with you. And there was this, you know, story and update about your, your mom um, and, and your brother working in the community, trying to disseminate, you know, food out to folks, in, young people in schools. Um, I believe there was a, I don't remember if she got a COVID test or tested positive. Um, so want to get some updates on that. And just in general, also then, how in the hell are you feeling? <laughs> 10 months into this in early October days before um, an election date. And lastly, I want to note that today is the day, October 2nd, 2020, where Americans and folks across the world woke up to discover the news that the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, and his wife, the first lady of the United States, have finally tested positive for COVID-19. And I say finally because they have not been wearing masks. They have been in large crowds with large people still holding in-person rallies left and right. And it felt like it was just a matter of time and the timing is right before the election. And I just want to note that many people are potentially not believing that he and the first lady even are accurately and truthfully testing positive. That this too, in the age of Trump and fake news and not believing anything, that it's quite possible that once again, we have a president who is telling a lie for potential political um, 
you know, gain as when Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Britain, got sick after his return, he was all of a sudden, um, you know, absolutely, um, you know, loved further and gained more popular support from the people for surviving COVID. So, Ivy, how are you doing? What's going on? Fill us in. <laughs> well, it's a it's an interesting question these days, right? Because I feel like it's so hard to answer. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think I I feel um, I don't know. It's weird. I feel like a couple weeks ago I was feeling very overwhelmed. I was feeling um, a little depressed. Um, it was feeling like everything was happening all at once and it was really hard to get my feet underneath me, you know, um, and feel like, uh, things were, could be stable. (laughs) It felt, everything felt so unstable. Um, I feel, I feel a little more stable now. I feel Mm -hmm. like, um, just personally, you know, I feel like okay, I'm in a, I'm in a good sort of spot. Um, I will say that, you know, I have been working from home this entire time and I'm now at a, you know, at first that was fine. Um, but now I'm at a point where I'm starting to, that's starting to weigh on me and wear on me a little bit in ways that it just hasn't yet. It just feels, everything is starting to feel a little, um, monotonous and that's hard after a while (laughs) just personally um but you know I think bringing it back to Breonna Taylor and the case um about her murder um that was a point that was a real low point um personally and I know it was a low point for the state and for people who have been on the ground in Louisville activists who have been out in the streets every single night um, in Louisville and in Lexington where I am, um, which is about an hour and a half south of Louisville. Um, You know, folks were really, um, they weren't surprised by the outcome. I think. Right. I I don't know that anybody anywhere in the country has been surprised. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There, there weren't really, um, you know, shocked (laughs) about this. I think, I think what people were most furious about justifiably. So this is what I was also furious about was the fact that the charges were not about Brianna's death. They were about property damage, uh, basically. Um, and I think it's worth noting that the apartments that, um, were, received the shots that, you know, the wanton endangerment charge was for, um, are occupied by white people. It was a white couple, um, that lives in that apartment. And I think that's very important. Definitely important to note. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think it's important to note too, about this case that, um, the grand jury, which is the jury that, uh, uh, gives the ruling, um, and you know, the charges, they, state the charges and, you know, make the charges, they um, are only able to go off of evidence that they are given by the attorney general himself. So 
in this case, whatever the grand jury saw was given to them by Daniel Cameron, the attorney general. And make of that what you will, but I think a lot of people who are, um, who have been working on the activist side of things of this case uh, are very suspicious of that. And in fact, there is a grand juror who has come out after the ruling and said, we want all of this documentation to be released to the public, which is something that Daniel Cameron had said he wouldn't do. Um, and, you know, he's not even going to say like, what's the racial makeup of the grand jury, which is, you know, suspect, suspect in my opinion. Um, but yeah, there is a grand juror who has come out and said all of this information should be made public. Um, so this is ongoing. I mean, you know, this, this ruling that happened doesn't mean in any way that, the work around um, police brutality in Louisville, the work around anti-gentrification, the work around justice for Breonna Taylor, none of that is gonna stop. None of that is gonna go away just because this ruling has happened. I mean, I expect um, people to be in the streets, uh, to be at Injustice Square, which is what um, protesters have renamed this square where they sort of gather and meet and they've held vigils there. Um, you know, that that's their gathering spot in, in Louisville. People are still going to be there. They're still going to be marching in the streets. There's still going to be this effort to seek justice for Brianna and, um, you know, this education about uh, the landscape of the militarization of police in Louisville, which I think is really getting uh, a big highlight right now. And a lot of people are seeing that maybe for the first time that that's an issue in Louisville. You know, I have a friend who lives there, who lives in Louisville that I was just talking to um, last week about this. It was maybe the day it was, it was soon after the ruling came out and um, she was saying she doesn't even live that close to downtown. She lives you know, seven miles away or something like that. And every night um, people get an alert on their phone about the curfew an hour before uh, the curfew happens at 9 p.m. They get another alert at 8.30. Everybody who's in Louisville, doesn't matter how close in proximity they are to downtown. Um, she says that there are helicopters that are constantly flying over her neighborhood. Uh, and she, you know, was talking about, you know, the trauma of this, of like being in this place that is just literally a war zone at this point. And, you know, these police are just like in the streets, you know, at, at 9 p.m. every night. You yeah. Know, it's, well, it's well let, let me ask um, a couple of follow-up questions. The first one is, you know, I definitely understand that for many Americans, um, particularly non-Black, non-people of color, this is the first time that the interaction with law enforcement and heavy police presence and a feeling of injustice or inequity and, and abuse of power, this is some, you know, right now, and for many people, this is the first time they've encountered something like this. And you don't know what you don't know, right? Like that, that is literally right. like our life experiences right now. If you don't know what you don't know, once you do, then the choice becomes, what are you going to do about it? And right. so I, I guess my first question is, why do you think 
that there are um, these mobile alerts at 9 p.m. for the curfew and helicopters. Is it that the curfew and the helicopters and the militarization and the presence so heavy of the police is a necessary? Um, and and I and I know that you and I are maybe of the belief that it never is, and yet I, I'm wondering like, is it being uh, somehow? said shown that it is military because there is a regular quote-unquote violent or could be violent um, protest presence and or is the use of helicopters and the curfews and this sort of like constant notification and alert that something needs law and order is that part of a political narrative that McConnell and others across these cities and across the state are constantly trying to continue to drum up the fear factor that we are needed, that a militarized and a heavy police presence is needed as a story, regardless of any protesters even being in the street? And I said, and or, because it could be both, right? So what is your personal and professional in, in, in your presence of, you know, being a, an organizer and a communicator um, and a journalist of what's happening in Kentucky. What is your assessment of the why this is happening? Well, I think it's spot on to what you just said. I mean, I think there is no reason for this kind of heavy police presence and there is no reason for this curfew. I think these are um, efforts at control and not only control of the protesters themselves, but of the people who are not protesting and who may disagree with the protesting. Um, I definitely uh, have not seen any instances of violence in these protests. Um, I've not heard about instances of violence. You know, there's this, there's been this narrative about um, quote unquote looting and destruction of property, public buildings that has been pervasive um, in, in any city where this is happening, but definitely in Louisville as well. Um, that just isn't accurate. It doesn't bear out. You know, the facts are that the protesters are peaceful, largely peaceful, um, that they are um, angry to be sure, they're upset, they're feeling a lot of hurt and a lot of trauma about what they're experiencing and what they are witnessing um, about the lack of justice for Brianna. Um, but they aren't, um, they aren't to be feared, in my opinion. Um, you know, they are expressing their grief and their trauma in a very visual physical way in terms of, you know, being out in the streets and protesting and coming together and trying to uh, heal together, really. Um, and also pushing for that justice, that lack of justice that's there. They want to see that. Um, and, and I will say, you know, that I feel like this narrative, as I said, is really about control. And it really is about um, politics, in my opinion. It's, it's a way for people in power, in positions of power, both within Kentucky, um, but also at the national level to point to it and say, we have to have law and order because of this. Like, look at this example of disorder and lawlessness that we need to control. And you should be afraid because they are going to come for you next. You know, if, if we don't control this, it's going to affect you and you should be afraid of that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's been this conflict uh, sort of analysis um, out there for the last few months that this the right says that this is about law and order, that we have laws and we have to have some sort of like social order. We can't have this chaos um, in society. And, you know, the analysis of that is you don't actually want law and order. What you actually want is obedience. And so, and that's very different. Law and order is very different than obedience because obedience, you know, has in it that there's someone who is controlling and saying what we should do and everyone must obey or they will be punished. Not that there's any sort of law or order in having people um, be obedient. There's no justification for it. It is just to do it, right? It is literally um, wrapped up in the definition of what a fascist and what a tyrant is in terms of that abuse of power. It's not for keeping people safe. It's for keeping the other piece safe, and that would be property. And this keeps coming up over and over and over again, all the way back to um, a particular historical event that people love to reference called the Tea Party, where it was about the destruction of property. That was the the final straw that really got people to open up and think about this wasn't actually about the property at all. It was about right. people's representation um, and ability to have a government that was actually meeting their needs. So I guess another question that I have is, you know, I'm in the state of Nevada, you're in Kentucky. One thing that we have in common, besides many things, in fact, although (laughs) I no longer have representation that is heinous and foul um, via Dean Heller, you still have Mitch McConnell. So, you know, my apologies (laughs) and and sympathies and thoughts and prayers for you. But um, we both have um, a state where you can open carry and where we have very active um, and powerful and growing constantly in recruitment, militia. And so there were some moments in Kentucky, there was that, I believe at the Injustice Square, um, maybe prior to it being called that um, by folks on the ground, that there was um, a, a shooting uh, of some kind, I believe. And I, I don't know or remember the details of it, do you? I don't remember the details. Um, I think most of the news that has come out from Louisville has been about not that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been focused on, um, you know, the peaceful protests. It's been focused on um, Brianna. Um, it's been focused on the lack of justice from Daniel, Daniel Cameron, mm-hmm. um, who by the way is, is a McConnell appointee basically i mean he mm-hmm. is a he, is he a spoke at the gop he spoke at the gop right. convention he was he was one of a handful of black men who were brought mm-hmm. in essentially to um on a parade to show that the republican party currently um could not possibly be racist because look we have five black men or so <laughs> who were saying that we're not therefore it must be true. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I think it's also another important, important point about Daniel Cameron, because it, it tells you a little bit about his ethos and where mm-hmm. he's coming from. If you can, mm-hmm. if you know that he has this direct link to McConnell. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and mean, I think. I really, I really appreciate you early on really wanting to stop and, and take note and make sure that it was known 
that also in the sort of, you know, grand jury that is that is starting to come forward and say, we want everyone to know what we were shown so that y'all can see how the story was framed and how a conclusion, right. an only conclusion of this nature could have um, been the outcome. And, and I really appreciate that you also brought up that, you know, the, there might be a deeper reason and rationale for not sharing the makeup um, the racial makeup of the jury in Breonna Taylor's uh, criminal court case. And, and there's a bunch of reasons for that, you know, like historically we have when um, black men and women are murdered, usually by the hands of people who are white, the jury is selected to be all or mostly white. So that when we talk about in the United States, there is, you know, constitutional rights that you will have a jury of your peers. Well, when the jury of your peers doesn't racially look like you, then it's the peers of who? The victim or the perpetrator or the person who's responsible um, for the crime, for the act, for the harm. And so it's very, um, it's very important and yet this is the pushback that we get in the United States, you know, like, Ivy, what are you doing? You're this white woman who's calling <laughs> out that um, there's racism in the world. And, and, you know, outside of the United States, we'll get people all across the world saying the U.S. is so focused on race. Like, it's all they can focus on. And, and in the United States, you have an opposition saying, I don't see color. So why do you keep pointing out our differences? If what we want to say is that they shouldn't matter, you keep bringing them up, you know, you, you progressive lefty liberals or now coined the radical left, you keep bringing up our racial differences. And so you're part of the problem. What's the answer to that kind of pushback? Why do you bring it up, Ivy? Well, because uh, how could I not? <laughs> I mean, I think that it's easy for folks who benefit from white privilege in this country um, and other forms of privilege in this country to not see these things because they don't affect them in their everyday life. Um, you know, and in terms of like police brutality, that doesn't impact me in my everyday life, but I'm able to look around and see what is happening in these communities, in my communities in this state, and know that there are real disparities here. There's a real um, disconnect between white America and black America, white Kentucky and black Kentucky. It is very different realities. And to know that this country, um, you know, to, to, to the point about people in other countries saying like, why are you so focused on this? Well, this entire country was built on this difference on this arbitrary difference that white people are somehow better than black people and brown people and that we as the white people have to keep that hierarchy in place when it isn't even real um, and and everything about this nation everything about this country this constitution this system of government that we have is built on that idea that isn't real that is very harmful and violent. Um, this isn't just something that, you know, happened in the Civil War era and was finished with the Civil War. It is, it is in every, every fabric of this, uh, 
nation. And, and when you, when you understand that, and when you know that, and when you see that playing out, when you look at the numbers, when you look at the data, if you, if you still believe in numbers and data, <laughs> if you're still going to listen to I mean, the news, that, that is a requirement. <laughs> you're, you're right. It that is, is a, a requirement. prerequisite. Yes. It is a prerequisite. Um, but you know, if you, if you are a thinking and a feeling and a conscious person who, you know, has empathy for other people, it's really hard to look at this, at these realities and, and say that things are all equal and everything is fine and everything is the same. You know, being from Eastern Kentucky, Central Appalachia, a place that has been exploited and extracted from, from for a really long time. I think um, when I think about, when I think about people from that place who don't understand this, um, this difference that is about racial lines uh, and, and um, uh, white privilege, when I try to think about how I would explain it to folks like that who are just like, they don't know what they don't know and they're in a place where they don't have to really think about it. You know, I try to think about, well, you are in a place though where your labor and your culture and your experiences are taken advantage of. And if you can think about like that's happening to you as white people, then let's like have a conversation about what's happening to people of color all across this country who are living in a completely different reality than you are. Um, I mean, it's hard. Like, it's really hard. It's hard to have these conversations with people who feel like good people, you know? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, part of this is twofold, right? There is, why should I have to um, take on and carry the burden of something that I personally did not do, though I benefit from the outcome. So you've got that. And then you've got the second half, which is also in there and in related in relation to that is, can we ever just move past this? Like, why do we have to keep talking about this? If racism and injustice through race, through class, through gender, through basically everything that is stigmatized um, is if that is our beginning, if our beginning is through injustice and colonialism and hate and murder, do you ever stop telling that story? If that is your like origin story, as you grow, as you keep evolving, is there ever a moment where you shed that part of the story or you don't have to say it anymore? You know, it reminds me of different personal experiences and relationships that I've had in my personal life with abusers, where at some point in the relationship with the abuser, when you bring up the stories and examples of harm done, their response is, oh, here we go again with that. The past is in the past. Can't we move forward? And I think, you know, and, I, and I've talked to other people in, in different seasons of this episode about the idea of when harm is done, it is not ever going away. And it requires an acknowledgement, an apology, and a an physical act to do the repair and and so I wonder, even after the repair, does the story of the harm 
go away? Like, is there going to be a moment in the United States when we get to reparations for all the communities that we owe a monetary and physical gesture towards wanting to repair the harm done? Will we ever get to a moment where we don't then tell the story of the harm? And is that the goal? Is the goal that somehow harm and hard times is never a part of our story as a country? Because right now we have the current administration who is attacking the archive, if you will, of our country. And that archive comes out in the curriculum that we have in K through 12 schools and in higher education. And the current administration is trying to make it illegal to talk about our complete country story and particularly to make it illegal to talk about negative stories, to talk about the harm and who did the harm, because God forbid those in power feel bad. So I guess what I want to know is, is that, is there a time where the past stays in the past and what is the benefit to telling a story that includes all the harm and wrongdoing of any country or person's past. What's the benefit in that? Uh, first, no, there's never a time where we stop talking about this history, this real and true history and the pain and the trauma of that. I think it's very dangerous to ignore those things because if you ignore those things, you can, it's very easy to say they never really happened. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're starting to tell only the good things or the good stories um, uh, that you, as you see them, then you're forgetting that it, that's not real. <laughs> that's, that's some wouldn't fake it, wouldn't, but wouldn't thing. It be good? <laughs> but wouldn't it be good? To, I mean, I'm thinking about this, this movie that came out a while ago, the eternal uh, sunshine or spotless yeah. mind, whatever, you know, like yeah. where it was like, let me just erase from my memory, every bad thing that happened to me, mm-hmm. because then maybe I won't have PTSD. Maybe I, then I won't have trauma. Maybe then we won't have trauma as a country and PTSD as a country. Like what, what is the positive benefit to remembering hard, traumatic moments? Well, I think, you know, as a country, the benefit to remembering those things is that you hopefully won't repeat them. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think one comparison that a lot of people are trying to draw between um, the U.S. now um, and other places is, uh, is in Germany, you know, that after World War II, they were not trying to erase the bad history about Nazi Germany. They were trying to put it on full display and also not allow it to happen again. You know, like things like um, Nazi symbolism and images are, are illegal there, are banned there. Um, and I think that's, I think about that often when, in terms of this question, like why do we keep talking about this and why do we keep trying to bring to light these histories that are not happy, but are, you know, a lot of pain and violence and trauma. And I think that's part of it is that, you know, the hope is that if we can talk about these things and bring them to light and bring them into the, into the present day, not only are we able to say, this is why this present day is the way it is because these things happened and led to this point. But then it's about saying like, 
you know, this is, this is something we don't want to do ever again. And this is something that we want to move beyond in a way that we're not repeating this. Uh, I think it's, it's very, it's just very, very dangerous to start thinking about, we don't need to tell these stories and we don't need to talk about that. I mean, this whole thing with the education system and curriculums, it's not as if, you know, it's not as if I learned in high school uh, the full breadth of what slavery was. You know, it was like a one sentence in my textbook that said American slavery happened from this time to this time, you know, and it wasn't even the correct dates. Oh, Ivy. Oh, Ivy. When I was a history teacher, when I was a history teacher in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some details because I think they're important, as you yeah. have, I've already made that very clear um, early on in this interview. When I was a high school teacher in Los Angeles, there was a co-worker. Um, they were teaching U.S. history. They were specifically spending months on slavery and the Civil War, which was not what you were supposed to do according to um, how much time you have and also the standards that you're supposed to hit in terms of topics and areas. They were doing it anyways they felt it was important and they were a white jewish teacher and a white non-jewish teacher who was a hard conservative in the history department walked into the classroom and stopped the teacher and said are you going to teach them the other side of slavery to which the teacher said and what would the other side be and this teacher said that this benefited the economy, that slavery was a benefit to the owners of the slaves in the South. Like this isn't just a bad story. It might be a bad negative story for the slaves, but this was a positive good story for the slave owners. And so this is, this is one of those moments, right? Where, where it's in, it's so intense. And I, I guess I, and I get this, and I know that, and I've shared that rationale and that story too, that we can't forget what we've done in the past and what we're doing right now. Otherwise, we are doomed to repeat it. It's this, this regular sort of like well-known uh, American sort of phrase, you know, like you have to know your history or you're doomed to repeat it. And yet, I am struck lately by the idea that we are also, in sharing the history, giving a blueprint constantly to the future of how exactly to get this done. I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again. What happened in Nazi Germany was not something that they invented on their own. The blueprint that they followed was from what we were doing here in the United States with Jim Crow laws post the Civil War. So Germany got it from us, and we get it from Germany, and round and around we go. And so- I get sharing it to prevent, but it's not just the sharing of stories. It's to your point about what was institutionally outlawed in Germany, that you cannot, it is illegal to have and use symbols of Nazi Germany. It is not illegal to use symbols of the five-year civil war in which the South lost. You and I have been able to be legally same-sex married to our partners longer than the civil war lasted. But here we have all these Confederate symbols and statues that, you know, give, give power and glory and cultural significance and praise to these losers, that's what they were, they lost, um, and, and racists, 
And that's what's different. So it's not just sharing the stories. It's sharing the stories and noting and sharing the stories of the institutional change that was made to prevent this. Because the stories won't prevent it. Changing institutionally how people can have different experiences will change things. And I want to I go to something else now. Because during this time as well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, battles and wins five cases of cancer in her life, but loses the most recent health battle. She was, you know, an older, older person, um, lived and died um, on the Supreme Court either as a, a lawyer who was bringing cases and then hearing the cases as a Supreme Court um, judge. And right now, we have this, this moment where the current president has the ability to appoint a replacement, has announced who the replacement is. Um, the media and, and some folks on the right have labeled her notorious ACB, just completely taking this notorious RBG, which was based on the notorious BIG, you know, like these cultural references and saying, see, same, same. She's incredibly conservative. Um, she doesn't have a lot of experience either. People are worried about the reversal of, of Roe v. Wade, um, further um, putting women at risk for not having access to abortions um, and therefore still doing them, but causing potential harm um, and, and being you know, killed by not having it done as a, as a proper medical procedure. And we also have that the Supreme Court case that will start right right after the election in November about whether or not the Affordable Care Act is legal um, is something that this new uh, Supreme Court justice might have. But the only possible red herring in all this is Donald Trump's COVID symptoms right now <laughs> and, 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 and positive tests that might um. prevent him and others from being able yeah. to move forward on this. So, I want to go back to what I mentioned and see what your thoughts are. Do you think the president is really sick? Do you think he really has Ooh. tested positive? You know, when I first heard the news, my wife told me this morning, as soon as we woke up, you mm -hmm. know, um, and my very first thought was, no, no way. That's not real. That's just not real. I mean, because to me, it's like, here's a man who this entire time has been denying that this is even a real serious right. virus, right. you know, I mean, he's, you know, not beyond not wearing masks, he's like coming out and saying it's not even a, a real threat, you know? And so my first thought was like, why would he even say that he had this if he didn't believe he could get it, you know? Right. Right. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it's, I think what is a bigger thing for me is that we're all questioning it, right? Like we all are saying, is it, is it real? Can we believe this? Is it just some like crazy? We have, like we have really, <laughs> we have really drunk the Kool-Aid. If we, yeah. if we don't believe <laughs> that the president potentially is telling the truth, well, but here's the thing, right? Okay. I think we should note that we just had the first presidential debate 
um, yes. just just last week, and yeah. it was horrific. Um, in that, Donald Trump the entire time would not abide by the agreed upon rules to not interrupt each other, and that you would have two minutes of ability to say whatever. That your only boundary was the time that you couldn't go past two minutes and that you would respect the moderator. And none of those things happen. Constantly interrupting Biden, uh, Biden getting flustered and trying to figure out how do I stay cool and give the information, but still also fight back that I'm constantly being interrupted. So many things yeah. that Biden had to do, whereas Trump just had to interrupt and, and demean and bring up very personal issues over and over again. And he did that successfully. And so there was a lot of uh, Republicans who were right after the debate starting to break away from supporting yeah. Trump and saying that was horrible, that was a disgrace. And more importantly, Trump in the middle of the debate was asked if he would denounce white supremacists. And a particular group was named um, the Proud Boys. And Trump's response was not to denounce, but to say, stand down, and more importantly, stand by. And so we have this fallout from the per first presidential debate where Trump does not necessarily win and look good and get support from this. And now he's sick. Exactly. Right. So, so there's that. <laughs> and then you also have that Trump was just at big rally events. And the recent news is that he already knew that he had tested positive. So, so it isn't that today Trump got news that he tested positive and has COVID-19. It's that today we learned that, or last night rather, that we learned that he tested positive. But he knew days ago when he was still going to rallies with thousands of people present without a mask and then on the plane in close proximity to other individuals and in meetings in close proximity to other people not wearing a mask. So today's news is not that he tested positive. Today's news is that he tested positive and others did too and that they knew for days and that because it's just now public that others tested positive, it had to come out that he was tested positive. So I tend to actually believe it because I don't think that he actually wanted us to know. And so now that we do, I feel like, oh, okay. Because yesterday he was positive and asymptomatic. Today, he's <laughs> tested positive with mild symptoms, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. Ivy, I want to go back to an earlier part. How are you again? Like, what, what, is, <laughs> what, is, what is your plan? Like, have you had a birthday? How's your mom? Um, how are your neighbors? How's the rest of your family? How are people feeling? How are you feeling about the election? There's so much talk about, you know, people being afraid of or getting ready for or ignoring needing to feel prepared about this sort of like violent out, out uh, cry and this violent outcome that I think folks are starting to consider and think about during the election if we don't know exactly who the winner is in a timely manner. Um, and what that would be like, because we haven't been here in, in quite a, a minute or at all for some of us. So how you doing? How's it going? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, just to talk about my mom first. So she actually did test positive for COVID um, several months ago now um, and thankfully was okay and fine and never developed really serious symptoms. She had some very strange symptoms, um, but she also has an autoimmune disorder. And I think, I think that was related to that and why her symptoms were very strange and not things that we'd heard about, like swollen lymph nodes and um, things like that, that just like, you know, were random. Um, But, you know, she thankfully was fine and she, you know, did the quarantine for the full 14 days and went and got a test after that and tested negative. So, um, and hasn't had a recurrence and hasn't had any uh, lingering kinds of issues that are happening with some other folks who have had COVID. So just that as an update, you know, she's doing well. Um, Good, good. I think, yeah, yeah, which is like amazing. Um, You know, we, during this time that we haven't spoken, um, my grandfather actually passed away. He was 92 years old, um, was living in the nursing home in Hazard in Perry County. And I think that, you know, the family is sort of in agreement that one of the reasons why he passed was that we couldn't go see him. He didn't have, he was very isolated and didn't have any contact with family members. And it was really hard. I mean, my mom had been going to see him every day um, and then just wasn't, you know, and he didn't, he didn't quite understand why that was. And I think he just, you know, was sad. He was just sad. And, you know, I got to the point where he wasn't eating anymore and, you know, things sort of snowballed from there. Um, But I mentioned that and I bring that up, you know, as an update, Um, but also to say that, you know, the funeral experience and the grieving experience was very, very different. Um, First of all, you know, funerals in East Kentucky are big affairs. You know, everybody who ever knew the person who died or the family members in any sort of way, they come out and they show up and they, you know, hold space for this grieving and for the family to grieve. Um, That can't happen now. Um, And, you know, my mom and her brother's were very um, clear that they didn't want to put anybody at risk. I mean, you know, we, we had a small graveside service and funeral and um, only family was there um, and some close friends. Um, And they were very much in agreement that that's what they wanted to do. I mean, most of the people who were there are in a risk category for COVID-19. And so, you know, that was, I was, I was proud of them for, <laughs> for being adamant about that and being clear. Um, and I think, you know, since mom tested positive, she's very strict about her exposure and the exposure of others. Um, but uh, <laughs> one of our family members, um, my cousin's husband, uh, had, had had symptoms for COVID uh, before, right before the funeral service. Um, he came to the funeral service after having been tested for COVID knowing that, you know, (laughs) he he had these symptoms, um, you know, and it was scary to find that out afterward that, you know, we had all been inadvertently exposed um, because he did test positive um, from that test. Uh, Thankfully he and the family members uh, in his family and extended family that also got COVID um, likely from, from him and being exposed 
are well and doing good and no one developed very serious symptoms. Um, but it, it was just this like really crazy, scary moment for my entire family that, you know, it was a pretty big family where we were all sort of like, it really hit home for us in that way. And it hit home politically for us in that way, because, um, you know, wearing masks and not wearing masks, you know, some of my family members disagree with wearing masks. They don't do it. Um, so it was a, it was a family discussion in a real way about this pandemic moment that, you know, consumed, consumed a couple weeks of all of our time while we were all going to get tested and, you know, waiting for results and things like that. Um, so that was, that was a big deal <laughs> with the family. Um, yeah. And I think, I think now everybody is pretty consumed with the election. Um, I think, you know, we, we have Mitch McConnell. <laughs> we wish we didn't <laughs> in so many ways. Um, and that's been on a lot of people's minds. And, um, you know, that election in particular has really amped up over the past couple months. Um, you know, his challenger, Amy McGrath, who I, who I should say in, in full disclosure, my wife works for, works on her campaign. Um, you know, that it's been a, it's been a really, um, it hasn't gotten super, super negative, but it has been negative and it has been really hard. And um, there is this group called Project Veritas, which is a um, conservative media group that has been sort of following Amy around the state and her staff around the state and just, you know, really, really stalking, really stalking them in a way that is not, um, safe. <laughs> you know, they don't feel safe about this. It's, it's not great. Um, so this campaign is like really starting to amp up and, um, they're trying now to work out, um, you know, debate schedules and all of that, which, um, is just going to be something. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, I think the election of the potential re-election of Trump or, um, you know, him not, him refusing to give up his power is, is looming very large. Um, for me personally, it's, it is very scary, the thought of um, this election being contested and not um, that power not being given up if uh, Biden does win. Um, you know, and I've, I've been, I've been perhaps against my better judgment doing a lot of research about, you know, what happens in that kind of situation. And, you know, basically the only, the only answer that we have as, as people and as a country to make sure that there's no possible way that Trump can refuse to give up his power is to elect Joe Biden in such enormous numbers that it is completely irrefutable that he won the election. And that point there really makes me scared because people are not excited about Biden. Um, people, at least here in Kentucky, are still very excited about Trump. Um, they are uh, not going to vote for anybody else. It doesn't matter, you know, and um, that is like really scary. <laughs> it's very scary to me. Um, it has been one of the things that has just weighed really heavily on me. And um, we, my, me and my wife have conversations pretty regularly about what do we do? What do we do if that happens? If Trump either doesn't lose or um, doesn't give up power and they're very serious discussions, you know, um, 
it for everything from, well, we buckle down and we try to do our best and do what we can for ourselves and for other people in our families. Um, or we don't, we, we find some way to not be in this country for a while. Um, and you know, there are questions and complications and, um, you know, complexities around that that are also very real and, um, uh, valid. Um, but it's just to say that like, we are having these conversations and I know that other people in my circle are not having those conversations. And I think it's one more way that, um, the privileges of certain people are being very exposed in this moment, in this pandemic moment, in this very critical election moment. Um, and it's, it's hard to exist in that space where I am and, uh, in the, in the space that I occupy in my work, you know, it's really hard to just, um, have these very serious and very real fears about what happens next and have people around me who are not telling me that I'm overreacting to my face, but probably feel that I'm overreacting. Um, it's hard to get them to understand where I'm coming from in my point of view. So that's been really hard, um, personally and professionally. Um, I first want to say that I'm, sorry for the circumstances around and um sort of the the way in which um family has passed um and and and, and died um so um my condolences uh to you and your family and second my condolences to having Mitch McConnell once again as your representative <laughs> and yes, my, condol- thank you. <laughs> my condolences um, that you and I um, both occupy a particular um, community presence um, being, um, being queer, being in the LGBTQIA community has never been a place where you are absolutely free and safe everywhere you go. It is a constant, uh, it is a constant pass that we are given in some places, you know, like you're okay to hold hands here. You're okay to kiss here, not over here. And that could be in the same neighborhood. It could be on the same street that you live on and you just leave, you leave the city, you leave the County, you leave the state, you leave the country and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of the limitations and the, the caution of where you can and where you can't. It's like walking on eggshells or trying to somehow make it through some, um, you know, path that um, is like in a video game. You're just like hopping along and trying not to be sucked into this like lava that's just waiting to consume you. So my condolences um, that you even have to have those conversations, more importantly, those thoughts about where to go. And yet that is also so in the fabric of the American story that people have fled, that people have needed to leave home so that they could be safe. Um, And that people make really bad, horrific compromises with what they know is needed and required and necessary and just because you're trying to do whatever is possible and in your control to stay alive, including aligning with a political party that you know is wrong, but has you believing that if you align with them, you might be one of the ones who get to survive. And so in my people 
have always moved north. You know, being of Mexican descent, how I got here in the U.S. is that my people went north. And so I'm thinking, do we just keep going north? Um, And it is a very real conversation. And it is definitely something that doesn't allow me to sleep well at night. Um, And I find myself personally in a moment where I'm constantly straddling two feelings, massive amounts of gratitude and massive amounts of stress and anxiety. So every day I tend to go to bed being, thank you that I had another day. And I don't know if there's a tomorrow. And it is a a very hard place to be. And so the last question that I have for you, which is the theme question for this particular season before we have our last, by the way, just so that you know, and anybody listening knows, we have this season, which is season four, And then we have season five, which will happen somewhere around the end of the year. And that'll give us a whole year of sharing these stories of the same 30 people um, and tracking what life has been like in the year, the first year of COVID-19. And I say that very specifically because I do not believe that it'll just be one. The question for this season is covid inherently has in it, for those who survive it, scarring, long-term changes that will stay with the survivors of COVID-19 for the rest of their lives. Those who do not survive are also having permanent scars and damage to those who loved them and who cared about them that they will and we will all carry as we move forward. What, Ivy, do you believe will be the lasting effects for you based on COVID-19, based on this current presidential year with COVID-19, based on the murder of Breonna Taylor and the injustice to her family and survivors and those who loved her? What do you fear is going to be a lasting effect on our country, on our institutions, on the people who live here, um, on yourself. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be negative. It could also be positive. But what is your prediction of something that is new, that we haven't seen before, that will become an additional piece of the fabric of this country? moving forward yeah I think I think it's going to be a lot of things I think the thing that I have been reflecting on most recently that is going to be a lasting impact is um, this notion of how fragile everything really is Um, you know from human life and your own safety in your own home um, to um, uh, and, and that includes like safety of your health <laughs> of this virus that can just, you know, decimate your body. Um, but also the fragility of our systems and our institutions, um, you know, our systems and institutions are um, very, very, 
strong in a way, but I think that people's belief in them is very fragile after this pandemic moment and, and all the other moments, the presidential election, um, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others, so many others. Um, I think that what I'm starting to see um, with people who probably wouldn't feel this way if this wasn't our reality, if they weren't looking around at all of this stuff that's happening, um, I'm starting to see them question these institutions and these systems of oppression that this country is built on, um, that it has been maintained by. Um, and they're starting to see that those things are not as solid as I thought they were. And for whatever reason, they are sort of coming apart at the seams a little bit. And we're starting to see a little bit more behind the curtain and who is pulling the strings. Um, so I think that will be a lasting impact. Uh, I think it's one that we probably um, won't see immediate effect of, but I do think, you know, I, I think about my nephew a lot who is uh, 17, almost 18, and he's very connected to the world. You know, he has his phone in his hand all, all the time, you know? Um, so he is very, and he's very perceptive. He's just, he's absorbing everything that's happening. And I think about him and I think about his generation. I think about, they are going, they are growing up and coming of age in this time that is bizarre in so many ways and is really going to shift things in so many ways. And what will they do and what will they be and what will they create and what will they take away? And I think that's one of the things that they'll take away is that these systems that seem like, and the narrative about these systems is that they are solid, they are immovable. You cannot change them even through, you know, Supreme court cases. Like it's so hard to change these systems, but I think they are starting to see in particular that it is very fragile and that it can be changed um, and it can be changed in good or bad ways. And I think my fear is that um, right now currently is that they will change in bad ways. I hope I'm wrong about that. Um, I think, you know, me personally, um, I think the thing that I'm taking away from this moment is um, on a lighter note, because <laughs> um, I, I feel like so much of my life right now is just um, heavy and anxiety field, filled. Um, but I think one of the things that I am like noticing about myself um, and about the life that I want to live and where I want to go from this moment in time is that um, what are the things that really make me happy and really fill me up and really are important to me um, that I feel like I've had time to focus on. I mean, you know, I've, I've been home for 10 months, you know, since this thing started working from home, but that's allowed me this, this headspace um, and, and heart space really to think about what are the things that are really important to me? What are the things that I want to give my time to and that I want to invest in? And it looks a whole lot different than, what I'm doing right now. Um, and so I it? think, I, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm still trying to figure it out, but I think, um, you know, I think I have a lot more to give than what I have been giving. Um, and I, to me right now, what that's looking like is, um, is, is teaching. Um, I feel I, I taught a class, a college class a couple years ago, um, for a couple of years and I really, really loved it. I really loved getting to talk to these young 
people <laughs> who um, uh, in some ways were not much younger than me, but uh, were in other ways. Um, but getting to talk to them about their world and their lives and getting to teach them things and tell them things and hope that they took it in and absorbed it and hear from some of them that they did and that it mattered to them in a real way. I think, um, you know, I, I'm a person who thinks a lot about what is my impact on the people around me and on, on my family, on the world, on my community. And I feel more and more like that is the way that I should be contributing to my community and to my world. And so I, I have been spending a lot of time thinking about what does that mean for me and where do I go from here to make that a real thing that I'm putting more of my time into. Um, and that has, is something that I don't think that would have happened without this pandemic and without this um, in between, <laughs> in between near panic attacks about the state of the world, um, having space to breathe and having space to really slow down and think about, you know, what am I doing? And, and is it what I want to keep doing forever? Or are there other things that I want to put my time and effort into? And I think one of the other things too is, um, you know, I've been investing a lot more into my writing. Um, you know, I'm a, a journalist by trade and a writer. And um, I've been doing a lot more writing through all of this because I have the time for it that I just felt like I didn't have before. And um, I'm able to think about what are the stories that um, I feel uniquely positioned to tell or to contribute to in some way. And I feel really excited about those possibilities as well. Um, so those are the positive things <laughs> that I'm taking out of this moment. And I think, I think I'm feeling a lot of anxiety, you know, about this election. It's like so close um, and it's going to be a tense, a tense, tense atmosphere, I think, until the election is over, until we know what we're dealing with. There are a lot of unknowns right now, um, but I don't know. Those are, my, those are my lingering thoughts, I think. <laughs> this is, um, this is, this is really really helpful i i don't feel that you and i are too far apart uh on on these thoughts and and these ideas and um uh because i'm interviewing you before the election i guess my extra credit last question is <laughs> who do you think is gonna win and i don't mean on election day i mean like yeah. when it is all said and done mm -hmm. however that process looks in the end, who do you think is going to be sworn in and be the 46th president of the United States? Hmm. Um, Not who do you wish. Yeah. Not who do you fear. <laughs> right now, today, October 2nd, Friday, who do you think is going to be sworn in? I Because I say Kamala Harris. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I say something happens to those two and it's Kamala yeah. Harris. <laughs> God, that would be a dream. <laughs> um, I just would be so happy about that. Um, you know, I think... I think COVID aside, you know, because like, I think that's the way that something happens to these two older mm -hmm. gentlemen. Mm -hmm. um, I do, 
I do feel and I do think that it's going to be Biden. Um, but I don't think that is going to bring the relief that we think it's going to bring. <laughs> I mean, it'll be a, it'll be a temporary kind of relief, but I think that the problem is that, um, there has been so much fervor <laughs> around Trump and around this white supremacist narrative that he has done nothing but put out there in advance that I think it's going to be, um, there's going to be a lot of strife and there's going to be a lot of tension and there's going to be a lot of work to do in order to not only quell that and make sure that it doesn't reach a fever pitch um, again, but um, I think it's going to be hard work. Um, and, and I say this like very tentatively because um, it's, that's also like what I'm very much hoping for. I also know that um, I am in a place, I'm in a state, I'm in a region that, um, that tells me it could very easily go the other way. Um, and I don't put much stock into polling. I don't put much stock yeah. into, you know, what people say they're going to do. You know, I, I feel like um, I, I understand people in some small way that, that um, makes me feel uh, very worried yeah. <laughs> about what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So your answer is you think it's going to be Biden, but yeah. I think what we're both agreeing on is that we know exactly who's going to be sworn in. And that is anxiety. And that right. is, that is not an end to this work will be sworn in. Um, knowing right. that it's not going to be easy to get there is going to be sworn in. Knowing that the work afterwards is going to be so hard and so challenging is what's going to be sworn in. And just to bring it full circle, we started the interview talking about what's the point of talking about our hardest moments, our most demanding moments, the moments where we are not our best. And we're talking about them again right now, our deepest yeah. worries and fears. And the point and the purpose is because if we don't, then we're denying that we we're thinking about them at all. Um, and I think it's also important to note, um, as has been noted in several of our conversations before, that this, this work to put people over property, to put people over profits, to put people front and center in anything and everything is not a destination. It is a process. And more importantly, it is a practice. And so it doesn't really matter who wins this election. I think it matters more who wins every election thereafter and probably what happens in between those elections and what just happens to everyday people and the choices that we make with what to do, when to step in, when to intervene, and when to just let things happen. So it's not about the election of 2020. It's about the election of every single minute of every single day and what we literally elect to do or not. Ivy, it's always a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thank you for making the time. I look forward to being able to speak to you again. And I look forward to us having a moment, not where we're celebrating, but where we can, you know, catch our breath again before we have to um, continue to endure this moment um, and what it's like. 
So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human. Stay human.